I hope you all had a good week. Um, I don't know, maybe you enjoyed our first uh, family movie night this past Friday night. I, I trust you were here for that, and, and it, was a, it was a great night, and, and we've got two more coming in July and August, so great opportunity for you to invite uh, your neighbors and friends to, to be there for that. So, so plan on that more to come. And, and I don't know if this week you had the opportunity to check out the day old section at Wegmans or Weiss. Some of, some of you for last week will remember that one. And if you don't, uh, you'll have to listen to the tape, right? Um, but anyway, a quick review, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now about food sacrifice to idols. And as we continue on in our study in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul is beginning a new topic. And of course, he's continuing on. That now about uh, is an indication that he's continuing to respond to back to verse 1 of chapter 7, which was uh, the matters that you wrote about. The first six chapters, Paul dealt with issues that the household of Chloe had brought up, had, had told him about, had gotten word to him about things that he needed to be concerned about. And then in chapter 7, he begins to respond to a letter that we don't have, a note we, we know of, and, and can only uh, understand what that was about by the way Paul responds. And so the next thing in line there was now about food sacrificed to idols. And as we mentioned, the culture in the city at Corinth included the worship of idols. Idol worship involved uh, offering animal sacrifices in the pagan temples to those idols. And it was uh, then the extra meat, there were leftovers. And that leftover meat was taken uh, by the pagan priests as well as the people that brought the sacrifice to offer to the idols. And uh, it was taken home to eat or sold in the marketplace. And uh, there were times too, and as we look at... Uh, Chapter, or chapter 8, verse 10, that it could be eaten socially in an idol's temple. And we haven't dealt with that at this point that much, but the idea that it was meat that had been offered to idols, and uh, is it okay to eat that leftover meat? That's the question. These new believers, new followers of Jesus, is it okay to eat this leftover meat that was sacrificed to idols, to buy it, to take it into your home? Or is that idolatry and it should not be partaken of? Well, Paul is attempting to deal with that. And so in verse 1, he continues on. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. And here we know that we all possess knowledge. Now, what was that knowledge? I'll get to that in a minute. But knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge is a necessary thing. Knowledge should give us as individual believers uh, direction. It should help us get answers for life's questions. It should give us understanding to know how God expects us to live. The knowledge of one God, that's the knowledge that he was referring to in verse 4. The knowledge that there is one God, that these idols were nothing. They weren't real gods, despite the fact that people worshiped them. Yes, that was the real part of them, but they weren't real gods. There is one and only one God. And when we have that knowledge, it should help us worship God. It should help us serve God. When you hear 
Uh, Nate stand up here and talk about Mission Scranton and you know the one true God and the the need of people to know him. Our hearts ought to be moved. We ought to be ready to, oh, man, I, I know that God, and I, and I need to tell others about that God. So it ought to cause us to serve. It ought to cause us to love others. Why? Because we know that God is love. It ought to cause us to, to have more faith. It ought to cause us to live better lives for God. It should set us apart as followers of God. Listen, the more we know the more godly we should be, or the godlier. I'm still not sure which is the right way. My uh, spell check kept changing it to godlier, and and, uh, okay, maybe some English teacher here will have to really tell me, and maybe it's one of those things that the internet has changed, I don't know. But you you get my drift. Let me say it this way. The more we know, the more like Jesus we ought to be. We get all that knowledge. We get all that truth right here. But if it doesn't change our lives, what good is it? That's the difference in the wise man and the foolish man. We've talked about that over and over and over again. But, but, and I do so because I believe the church is becoming more focused on knowledge and less focused on obedience to that knowledge. And as time moves on, we have less and less, fewer and fewer people who are involved in the things that the knowledge of God ought to tell them is true and therefore change their lives. That's what Paul's talking about. He goes on and he says, but with all that knowledge, he says, knowledge puffs up. You see, there's a problem with knowledge. Oh yeah, we need it. It ought to change our lives. But he said, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge used wrongly causes pride. It develops arrogance. it's, It's the understanding that I know. I have a lot of information. That's great. We can win the game of Bible trivia pursuit, right? But, but that doesn't mean that we're obedient. And that's the warning. Knowledge puffs up. And, and verse 2, it's, it's you think you know more than you do. Those who think they know something do not know as they, they ought to know. And, and those with this kind of knowledge, this prideful, arrogant knowledge, the way they live it out, They act in a way as a result that does not endear them to people. You know, have you known anybody like that? Who has that kind of a know-it-all attitude? You know, the guy that stands at the water cooler in the office or wherever else and and has all the answers and, and typically doesn't endear himself to everybody. Knowledge puffs up. And remember, 1 Corinthians is a corrective letter. And Paul is seeking to do correcting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one God. Paul is saying that. That's the knowledge. That's what we know. We don't have to worry about these idols because meat offered to idols isn't legit. Those idols don't exist. They aren't gods. There is one God. And so as he's going through the text here, he's basically saying that we know that there are no other gods, despite the fact that some people worship idols, that's insignificant compared to the one, the only God that we know, the true God. Therefore, with that knowledge, it's like, okay, let's eat. That's what he's saying, all right? Let's eat. 
It doesn't matter because idols aren't real gods. You see, in this case, knowledge leads to freedom. The freedom to eat that meat. Why? Because even though it's offered to idols, they are no gods. But he's not done. Because verse 7 of chapter 8, not everyone possesses this knowledge. What? Not everybody understands that even though those idols are viewed by some as gods who are worshipped with sacrifices as gods, they don't get it. And, and, and even though they would know God, or Paul wouldn't be writing to them as brothers and sisters, uh, the concern there is that he says, verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat or no better if we do. Again, it doesn't matter except for the fact that there are those that are still struggling with it. New believers. Those who he says here as he moves on, verse, uh, uh, their conscience is weak. And that's the concern. So the answer, that knowledge, which then would mean for some, they shouldn't eat that meat offered to idols. Because they, they have a weak conscience and they would be violating their own conscience and they would sin as a result. And so Paul is saying, then don't eat it. You say, wait a minute, you just said he said it was all right to eat it. Yes. He also says, don't eat it. Why? Because it's that individual and the knowledge they have and how it affects their conscience or doesn't affect their conscience that determines whether or not. So yes, Paul is saying there are some of you who eat up, enjoy. There are others that he's saying, your conscience is weak. You're concerned about this. This is a question. You don't have the freedom. You don't have the right in your own heart. Do not eat that. So some yes, some no. But wait, there's more. Paul has to say. Even saying to those who, who could eat the meat offered to idols. Because we get to verse 9. He says, be careful then, however... That the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. That we don't cause them to trip up and fall and sin. And then he says, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, verse 11, or sister, for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and, would, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Here it is. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, even though it is perfectly okay for me to eat it. But if it calls, causes my brother or sister with the weak conscience that doesn't feel comfortable with eating that meat offered to idols, then I won't eat it. And that's what Paul says. He says, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. And that's not Paul's admission that he's going to be a vegetarian. Some, somebody may have, ah, see? 
there you go. No, that's not what he's talking about. Then I'll never eat that meat offered to idols again. Because I don't want to cause my brother or sister to fall into sin. Knowledge leads to freedom. That's what Paul is saying. Freedom to eat the meat. But knowledge may also, because of love, because of our concern for our brother or sister, love may lead you to sacrifice that freedom. Did you get that? Yeah, knowledge leads to freedom. But love may lead you to sacrifice that freedom. And that's why Paul said at the end of verse 1 when he said, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Keep that in mind. Love may lead you to sacrifice your freedom. Wow. That could be a hard one. And whatever those topics may be, I mean, I grew up in the day and age, as some of you folks did, that, that going to movies was one of those things that you didn't do, but a lot of believers were, hey, what's the deal? I'm, I'm being careful with what I allow to enter my mind, and some of it's no different than television. I mean, I could go through all the arguments on both sides, right? Are you willing to give up your freedom to go to a movie because you love your brother and sister who might be offended if they went and you caused them to sin because they did it only because they thought you were doing right before God. You see, this whole business of offense and causing a weaker brother to stumble, that doesn't mean that you do what somebody who disagrees with you wants you to do. We get hung up on this whole thing. I remember reading years ago and studying some of these weaker brother, stronger brother issues. It is interesting that you don't even find the term strong or stronger brother in this, in this context. Now, we, we read about the weak, but, but as we look at it, the idea is, well, who's the weak? And, and, and the guy that I was reading was talking about, you know what? Sometimes the weaker brother is the biggest bully in the church because he always gets his way. If we always have to give up our freedoms, if we always have to sacrifice our freedoms for the weaker brother, then man, that guy gets his way all the time. But it's not, that's not what Paul is saying. You see, if that was true, the concept of what happens here is because of the freedom of the one who we call strong uh, causes the weak conscience to sin that's the idea. It's not somebody who's just what we may call a legalist or somebody who has a different perspective, somebody who disagrees on you, with you. No, no, no. If it causes them to sin, that's now the issue. And most people that want to make a point with you about whatever the issue is about disagreement, they want to prove their point and claim to be the weaker brother, so you have to do what I, if you're really going to be obedient to Scripture. No, no, no. Because they're not going to do that in sin. Do you understand the difference? We have to be very careful with that. When this happens, the, the, the one who has the freedom to exercise and does that 
It's wrong if it causes that one to violate his weak conscience and therefore sin. That's, that's what we have to keep in mind as we look at that. So, chapter 9. Here where we are, you say, wow, it's already 23 after or 22 after. What in the world? Well, folks, we're, we'll be here at least another hour. Just kidding, just, just kidding. But chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. So at first glance, as we jump into chapter 9, it may appear that Paul's beginning a new topic. He seemingly leaves the topic of food sacrifice to idols and takes up this topic of the right for him to earn a living as an apostle, getting paid to minister. That's, that it, that's what at first glance it would seem he's talking about. However, as we look a little closer, dig a little deeper, uh, we find that Paul is really continuing the same discussion. He is building a case for his right, for his freedom to get paid for his ministry to the Corinthian church. He's building the case to say, listen, believers in the church at Corinth, I have a right to be paid. And then he goes on and he establishes that case. However, this isn't primarily just about that business of how do we pay full-time Christian workers. That, it talks about there are some principles, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is still our freedoms and our rights and how do we use those freedom and our rights with other believers? And that's what he's talking about. He is building the case for his right so that he can willingly and voluntarily give up that right. He's building a case to say, this is what my right is. You should pay me. But he's doing that so that when he's all said and done, he can give it up and say, hey, I'm not doing that. Now, we'll see that as we go through the text. Paul's illustrating the fact that we should be willing to sacrifice our freedom, our rights, in order that we do not cause a brother or sister to sin or that we do not hinder the gospel. And we could make the case that if we cause by our behavior to cause a brother or sister, another fellow believer to sin, we would be doing danger to the gospel. We would be hindering the gospel because we'd be creating sin in the church or amongst God's people. And so there, but he also brings up this just to simply hinder the gospel. And that's the case, the illustration he's going to build here. So outline. Point number one, the first two verses, Paul's defending his apostleship. Look at it there. I am, am I not free? Now, he, as he does this, he's asking four rhetorical questions in verse one. Now, he's asking a whole lot of rhetorical questions as we move through this. In other words, you know what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that you ask when you know what the answer is, and so does everybody else to prove your point. That's a rhetorical question. So here we go. Four rhetorical questions in verse 1 of chapter 9. Am I not free? I'm a believer. Don't I have the liberty to live as everybody else does? Yes. Am I not an apostle? Well, some would question. Some in the church of Corinth were obviously questioning that. They were wondering about Paul's authority. And, and so he, but that is a rhetorical question because the expected answer will be, well, yes, you are, because there would be those who knew that. But then he goes on and he really kind of hones in on that question. The third question, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? 
Well, yes, he did. Keep your place there, but just look ahead to chapter 15. Chapter 15. You could go back to uh, Acts chapter 8 and, and see, excuse me, Acts 9 and see, no, chapter 8, Paul on the, on the road to Damascus when he got saved, he saw the resurrected Jesus. God stopped him in his tracks. But look what he says in chapter 15 in verse 8. And last of all, he's talking about the resurrected Jesus in chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. And he says here, last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul's talking. Jesus appeared to me. He claimed that. But we know that's true when you go back to the book of Acts and study how Jesus confronted Paul, where Paul got saved on the road to Damascus. So, yes, all of that's true. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He says, verse 2, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's saying, listen, God has called me. I'm sent by him. That's an apostle, one who is sent with a message. And so he's saying, I am sent. Are, he says, verse, verse 1 there, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Are you not the result of my apostleship ministry? Of course you are. Remember we saw back in Acts chapter 18, Paul started the church at Corinth. He ministered to the people in Corinth. People got saved. Their lives were transformed. He ministered there for a year and a half. And now he's talking to those believers, many of whom came to Christ as a result of his ministry. And he says, you are proof positive that God has called me to serve as an apostle. And that's why he says, am not I. He says, the reason, are not you the result of my work in the Lord? And, and even though there may be some others who doubt that, of all people, you, he says, verse 2, you should know better. You should know because you've seen the work God has allowed me to do. The Corinthian church is evidence. It's like a seal, a stamp of God's approval on Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church. So he says, I am an apostle. So that's the first two verses. He's defending, we see, um, I think I have the outline here. He's defending his uh, ministry of apostleship. Secondly, we start in verses three to 14. He now defends his right to get paid. He's building the case to defend his right to get paid, verses three to 14. And here's a whole, whole lot more of... Uh, Rhetorical questions. Verse 3 said, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. All right, he's kind of saying, listen up. Here we go. Look at verse 4. He says, don't we have the right? Who? Who's the we? He's talking about those who are in ministry, those who are apostles, those who are serving God. He says, don't we have the right to food and drink? In other words, don't we have the right to, to eat, to, 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 to get the, the daily bread that we need as a result of our ministry to you. Look at verse 5. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, that's Peter. We know Peter was married, right? We see it right here. They took their wives along as part of the ministry and it says, don't, don't I have that right? Don't we have that right? You'd have to pay for them too. Then he goes on, verse 6. 
And he says this, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Lack the right to not work for a living. My weak English grammar, I already told you that about, is it, is it um, more godly or godlier? You'll, you'll have to figure that out. But here it's like, okay, doesn't that sound like a double negative? Lack the right not to work for a living. What he's saying is, we do have the right to work for a living. Earn our living from the ministry. In other words, not be in ministry as an apostle and have to take a secular job, a job outside of the ministry. He says, don't we have that right like everybody else does? That's how he's really saying it there. Then he goes on, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? How many of you guys have been in the, the military? Men or women? How many of you have been in the military? Yeah, there's hands, a number of you. All right, great. Did you have to clothe yourself, feed yourself? Did you have to find a place to, to live? No. The, the, the United States government, whatever military branch you served in, they provided your uniforms, your clothing. They provided your weapons. They provided your food. They provided a place to sleep, right? Now, I realize that during wartime, you'd have been out in the, but, but they gave you a blanket. That you, that's what he's saying. Soldiers don't have to earn their keep. They get paid to do that. Then he goes on and he says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? How many of you have got gardens in the ground this summer already? Yeah. Are, are, do you have a right to eat the vegetables that come, come as a result of your hard work? You say, you better believe I do. Some of those dumb rabbits don't seem like they understand that. Uh, but, but yeah, okay. Well, that's what he's saying. We planted a vineyard. Don't we get to eat the grapes? And then he goes on. He says, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Now, I always thought a flock was sheep, but I, I, I don't know. Is there sheep milk? I know there's goat milk. All right. And, and, uh, so that's what he's saying. Again, it's the same principle. You Get the benefit of taking care of that flock. Then he goes on, verse 8. Do I say this merely on human authority? Is this just all of my ideas that I'm dreaming up here? He says, he says, doesn't the law say the same thing? The law of Moses, the Old Testament. Doesn't the Old Testament have this something to say? The same thing as what I'm saying when he says the law of Moses, verse 9. It is written, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4 is what Paul is referencing here. The Old Testament law, and he was telling those who owned oxen how to take care of those oxen while they're working for you. And they would be in a big round tank. There was a couple ways for them to do that. They would walk around in circles, kind of harnessed in the middle, dragging a heavy wood object that would smash the grain that was underneath that board so it would separate the grain from all the stuff in which it grew, the chaff. Or sometimes there wasn't a board and those oxen just walked around and trampled on it till, 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 the, till the grain came out. But while they were doing that, the, God had told those farmers, let the oxen eat while they're working. Let them bend over and eat some of that grain while they're working. That's what he's saying. 
I remember I worked at, a, at an apple peach orchard when I was a sophomore in high school down in South Jersey. And uh, I worked at the, the, the place where we separated the really rotten peaches that came in from the ones that could be sold. Not the ones that would be shipped out, uh, but the ones that could be sold right there out front of the, of the, uh, of the, the store or the, the orchard. And so I had to sort out and put them in the baskets. You have you seen peach baskets, right? And I had to learn how to put them in, have them come up with a nice cone top and and, and at first I thought, this is the most ridiculous thing. What in the world? But, but I got it done. Well, every once in a while, we'd be all caught up and, and they'd say, hey, come on, we're going to go outside, right outside the door, right next to the barn there. We're going to go pick apples. Well, there were green apples right there. And so we'd go out and pick green apples and they let us eat them if we wanted to. I made that mistake one afternoon. <laughs> About three green apples were consumed and I didn't feel real good that night at dinner. But, you know, it's like that's the concept. The, the, the oxen get to eat while they're working. That's the whole idea that's involved. And then Paul says there as he's, as he's going on with that, he says, um, is, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Well, yeah, he was back in the Old Testament. But he's also, this, he's saying this is also for you to get the point. That a laborer is worthy of his, or, uh, of, of getting, being uh, a worker is worthy of that labor. He deserves to be fed while he's working. So he says, he says, this is, is for us too, right? And he goes, yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes, threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If you work, you deserve to get eat, to eat. You need the strength, you can do that. He continues on, verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest? No, that's his whole point again. He's talking about this idea of a, a, a laborer deserves to be paid for his efforts. And even in the work of the ministry, that's what he's saying. If we've sown spiritual seed among you, he then says, is it too much if we reap a material harvest? Payment. Verse 12. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? In other words, Paul's saying, we're not the only ones that you're paying or have thought about paying or have paid in the past who are serving God with you. And if they deserve to be paid, so do we. And then he goes on. Little pause here. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, but we did not use this right. We deserve to be paid, but we didn't claim that right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. We chose not to get paid because we didn't want to hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, how did that hindrance happen? Not real sure. It could very well have been that just like the, 
the preachers and teachers of the day that would come into the city of Corinth to gather a crowd and, and hopefully people would, would pay them to do that. Or if some rich patron hired this guy so that he could also make him say what he wanted him to say, he'd earn a living that way. But Paul wasn't one of just those preachers that came into town with a message to, to share so that he could make a living. No, he was there to promote the gospel of Christ. And whatever that hindrance may have been, Paul is saying, we will not receive a living. We don't want to exercise our right to be paid because we don't want to hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, hold on to that because he goes back to his argument. Verse 13, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered? In other words, the priests and Levites in the Old Testament, you could read back through the Old Testament, you'll find out that God designed a way for them to be paid from the sacrifices that came in by the people. God took care of them. That's how the Levites and the priests were paid at the temple and at the altar. And then verse 14, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Jesus said that. You could check out Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. And there in those verses, he talked about the 70 that he sent out two by two and said, when you go out there, hey, look for people that will take you in. Why? Because you deserve to be paid for your ministry in the Lord. They will take care. That's how God provided. That's what he's saying. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But, but, verses 15 to 18, Paul says, I have not used any of these rights. Now, he just kind of stopped verse 12 in a brief pause. And, but I have not used any of these rights. That's the word for freedom as well. I've not exercised my freedom to be paid. That's what he's saying. Why, why, why does he say this? He says, and, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. In other words, he says, and by the way, this isn't reverse psychology. I'm not just saying I have the right to be paid, but don't want to get paid, so you'll feel sorry for me and pay me. You know how that goes, right? We all know how to work backwards and kind of sneak in the back door with an argument. We tell somebody, no, nah, I really don't want that, but in fact, I really do want that. Paul says, I'm not doing that. He said, that's not what's going on here. So he says, I'm not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. What boast? He says, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. I can't brag about it because God called me to preach on the road to Damascus. When he got saved, he said, I've called you to preach to the Gentiles. Go do it. And he says, so, so I can't brag about that because I'm doing it because God called me to do it. But he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But verse 17, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. In other words, if you're not paying me, I've got a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. If you pay me, then I'm just doing whatever. But he says here, verse 18, what then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. What I'm concerned about 
is preaching the gospel free of charge. I have the right to be paid. But that doesn't matter to me because I'm more concerned about the advancement of the gospel than I am to get paid. And I'll sacrifice our, I will make tents so that I don't have to charge the church. Now, Paul was paid by other people. They took offerings and sent it to him. But he's telling the church in Corinth, I don't want you because I want the gospel to go out and I want to do it free of charge. I'll sacrifice my right to compensation. Now, again, we tend to think of these chapters, 8, 9, 10, as chapters that are about our freedoms and our rights. How do we get or keep our freedom? How do we get or keep our rights? But it's really about being willing and ready to sacrifice our rights for the cause of Christ. That's the point Paul's making. He's using himself as an illustration. He's illustrating the point with his own life. He's saying, folks, I just told you in chapter 8 that, you know what? I have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but if that doing so would cause somebody to sin, I will never eat that meat because I will not cause my brother or sister to sin because of my freedom, my right. I will sacrifice that. And he illustrates that point in, verse, in chapter 9 by saying, I deserve the right to be paid because I'm a minister of the gospel. But he says, after he builds that big case, there's nobody hearing those first 14 verses that wouldn't understand that Paul should be paid for his ministry. Did you hear what Nate said this morning? He had a full-time job and he gave it up to go do Mission Scranton. Well, how do you do that? Well, you trust God first. You know that there's one God, the true God, because that one God has stirred your heart and then God will provide as he raises support. God will use God's people to provide so that he can do that ministry. But what Paul is saying, he's saying, I am willing to give up my right to be paid so that I can minister the gospel so there's nothing that I would do that would hinder the gospel of Christ. We said it earlier. You know what that, that tells us about Paul? He's all in. He's all in. I would say as it relates to Mission Scranton, Nate is all in. He didn't ask me to say that. I didn't tell him I'd compensate him for saying that. All right. But it's obvious. He is all in. Or he wouldn't be giving up sacrificing his right to a full-time job to serve God at Mission Scranton. Let me say it again. We said it earlier. Knowledge leads to freedom, but love may lead you 
to sacrifice that freedom for the advancement of the gospel. Say, so, so what about all this? We, we already heard that there's not meat sacrificed to idols being sold in any grocery store in our town. It's okay. But what's the point? Well, my question would be to you this morning, what sacrifice will you make to advance the gospel? What sacrifice will you, will I make to advance the gospel here in northeastern Pennsylvania? I, I just started thinking, and I, I'm not going to go through it. I, I have a list of things. Jesse, just, just throw them all up there. Are you willing to sacrifice your time and energy and free time and all to serve God? Are you willing to give up a Friday night to show up Friday night at the family movie night, which is designed to advance the gospel in our neighborhoods? You can invite people who don't know Jesus to just come and have a good time. Are you willing to give up, your, sacrifice your free Friday night to come serve God? Are you willing to do that on Sunday mornings? Maybe at sometimes it means your sacrifice sitting in the auditorium and, and being preached to, to serve down the hallway. I, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means you'll get here earlier. You'll sacrifice an extra hour of sleep so that you can get up earlier and be part of our greeter team that meets you at the front doors in the morning or, or the cleaning team during the week that makes our buildings worth a clean so that you can come and not, and, not, and not worry about sitting in dirt and all the rest of it. Maybe you'll sacrifice. What will you sacrifice for the advancement of the gospel? How about just being here? Well, I'd rather not. Or, you know, we've had a rough week and we've been busy all week long. Would you be willing to give up some of that rest that maybe on Sunday you'd rather do than coming and being here for two or three hours on a Sunday morning? How about would you be willing to give up some time on, on a, a couple hours a, during the week to be part of a community group? Why? To, to advance the gospel? How about giving? Would you give your home as a meeting place where a community group could meet once a week? It would take a little bit of extra cleaning maybe during the week, men. <laughs> See? Are you willing to give of your resources? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to trust God? What about inviting? Are you willing to invite somebody to the family movie night? Praying. Are you willing to pray? Boy, now that's, you can do that right in the comfort of your own home. The question, Jesse, would you put that back up there? The question, what sacrifice will you make to advance the gospel? Paul is saying, we need to be concerned about the gospel about one another and exercising love and being willing because we love one another to sacrifice our freedoms and our rights. And we need to be concerned about not hindering the gospel and be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be to advance the gospel. What sacrifice will you make to advance the gospel? Folks, this church has been here 52 years. I think we have ought to have had a bigger impact on our community than we have. 
with this many people who say they believe in the one God, what are we willing to sacrifice because we say we believe in one God? Though we have rights to use our time and resources and relationships in any way we want, what are we willing to sacrifice to advance the gospel? Father, boy, Paul doesn't mince words here. He's all in, no question about it. God, would you stir our hearts? Would you cause us to be willing to ask, are we all in? Because there is only one God. None of these other idols that are worshipped today around the world are real. They're not. There's one God and we know it's you. And you've provided salvation for those who will believe. God, we say we believe that. We have all this knowledge. God, would you burden our hearts to be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be for the advancement of the gospel. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.